Hey guys, we are going to get started on this Audible. The reason being is I could not find this on Audible, so you're going to get an exclusive Audible, and it's from yours truly. So let's get started. This is one of the most important books you could ever read, especially if you want to know the origins of money and a history of central banking. So the title is A History of Central Banking in the Enslavement of Mankind by Stephen Mitford Goodson. Let's start with the foreword. Okay. This book is bound to be controversial and engender strong reactions. And I do not endorse all of the viewpoints expressed therein. Why would a seemingly arid subject matter such as the history of central banking and of the monetary system give rise to such strong reactions. One must wonder why some will attach to this book the stigma of heresy and argue that Stephen Goodson has gone beyond the parameters of acceptable historic, historical debate. Goodson has the credentials and track record to make a credible presentation of a subject matter, which he has researched for decades, in which he has lived personally as a non-executive director of the South African Reserve Bank. I do not have the expertise to say whether Good Goodson's findings are accurate, but I do know that the raw nerves he touches are on an account of central banking and the monetary system created thereunder, being at the core of the persistent, profound, and inhumane differences in wealth distribution within any given country and among countries. For this reason, for several years, my party and I have argued that South Africa should reform its central banking and monetary system, even if that means placing our country out of step with inquisitious world standards. Books on economics and banking are generally viewed as being abstruse, whose readers are confined mainly to academia and the business world. In this case, we have a notable exception. This work provides not only a broad sweep of the history of economics over almost three millennia, but insights into how the problems of usury have been confounding and enslaving mankind since its civilized existence first began. It may shock some to realize that central banks throughout the world, including our own South African Reserve Bank, do not serve our own best interests and are in fact in league with private banks. This not only undermines our sovereignty, but deprives, of, but deprives us of the means of having publicly issued debt-free money which belongs to the people as its sovereign debt, an interest-free means of exchange. Instead, in our country, as in other countries, we use private money produced out of debt by the private banking system. Shifting from bank notes to government notes would provide our people with a decent life, which is blessed, prosperous, and sustainable. But such a simple reform would be a real revolution, more difficult to bring about any than any other reform in our social change imaginable. Although South Africa gained its freedom in 1994 in all its outwork manifestations inwardly, with the, except, with the exception of a small minority of black and white entrepreneurs, the general population has neither benefited nor thrived, and moreover has not realized its latent potential, mainly because of the defects in the monetary system. If we are to achieve real freedom, it is imperative that monetary reform be pursued with the same vigor and intensity as we displayed towards political reform during the struggle years. 
but that requires understanding the complex issues of how money is created, whom it belongs to, and whose interest it serves. In this book, Goodson has not only sketched numerous successes of previous states rather than private banking systems, but has also provided us with a blueprint which may address many of our out entrenched social problems such as low economic growth, high unemployment, and declining services. Albeit decidedly controversial, this is a book which thinking South Africans should read as an inspiration for political action. In his address before the American Newspaper Publishers Association on April 27, 1961, President JFK famously stated, without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed and no re republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Salone decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. Okay, we're gonna get started with the introduction. Here we go. History is the most crucial subject of any educational system, superseding science and the humanities in importance. Within its fabric, it holds the culture, traditions, beliefs, ethos, and raison d'etre necessary for the continued existence of any people. If history is comprised, compromised by falsifications and omissions, which are frequently imposed by outsiders, then the civilization will decay and finally collapse, as may be observed in the slow disintegration of Western civilization since 1945. George Orwell expressed a similar sentiment in 1984 when he wrote, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of history. Winston Churchill once made the observation that the further one goes back into history, the clearer the pictures become. By employing this technique, the author is hopeful that any doubts which readers may have concerning his analysis and exegesis of modern historical events will be assuaged, if not entirely eliminated. For any nation, state, society, community to have full sovereignty and independence in its affairs, absolute control over the means it employs to exchange goods and services must reside with the organs which represent the people and must not be delegated to private individuals. Throughout recorded history periods of state control of the money supply have been synonymous with eras of prosperity, peace, cultural enrichment, full employment and zero inflation. However, when private bankers usurp control of the money creation process, the inevitable results are recurring cycles of prosperity and poverty, unemployment, embedded inflation, and an enormous and ever-increasing transfer of wealth and political power to this tiny clique who control this exploitive monetary system. Whenever these private and central bankers have been opposed in the past by nature's by nations seeking restoration of an honest money system, these parasitic bankers have invariably invoked a patriotic war in order to defeat the much maligned 
enemy. This has been a feature of almost all wars during the past 300 plus years. This book provides insights as to how private bankers since ancient times have abused monetary systems, whether they are based on coin, banknotes, check, or electronic money, by creating money out of nothing as an interest-bearing debt in order to arrogate supreme power to themselves. It also provides a record, both ancient and modern, of societies and civilizations which have flourished in an environment free from the burden of usury. The solution is simple and self-evident. If we, if we wish to obtain our liberation and sovereignty from the enslavement imposed by the private bankers, we must dismantle their fractional reserve system of banking and supporting central banks. Or we ourselves shall be destroyed and consigned to oblivion. Okay, now we're going to start chapter one. That was um, obviously... I'm not, you know, an English major, so, you know, keep that in mind. I don't have the best pronunciation, all that good stuff, but just bear with me. It's going to get better as time goes on. Okay. This chapter is called How, U How Usury Destroyed the Roman Empire. Money being naturally barren to make it breed money is preposterous and a uh, perversion from the end of its institution, which was only to serve the purpose of exchange and not of increase. Men called bankers we shall hate, for they enrich themselves while doing nothing. Aristotle. The monetary system of the Roman era, era 753 BC to 565 AD, may be divided into three distinct periods where units of three different metals were used as the means of exchanging goods and services. Although there is evidence of modern human occupation, Homo sapiens sapiens, in the Rome area going back 14,000 years, Rome as a city is traditionally said to have been founded by Romulus and Remus in 753 BC in a region surrounding the Palatine Hills also known as Latium. According to the legend, Romulus, who killed his brother Remus, became its first king, but later shared the throne with Titus Tatius, the ruler of the Sabines. Around 600 BC, Latium came under the control of the, of the Etruscans. This lasted until the last king, Tarquin the Proud, was expelled in 509 BC and the Roman Republic was established. The Etruscans, a people of Arian origin, created one of the most advanced civilizations of that period and built roads, temples, and numerous public buildings in Rome. The first money used in Rome was the cow. This was not true money, but a barter system. Many early people used cattle as a medium of exchange. According to the, le the legend of Heracles in the Augean stables, the cattle kept there over 3,000 in number, represented the treasury of King August. The Copper Age, 753 to 267 BC. As time went on, the Romans took to using, instead of cattle, irregular lumps of copper or bronze. These lumps were called aeus, rude, and had to be weighed for each transaction. 
there was an increase in trade in Rome. Became, Rome became one of the most prosperous cities in the ancient world. This prosperity was based on uncoined copper, later bronze, metal, which was measured by weight according to a fixed system of units. It was issued by the Roman treasury in the form of ig, inna, ingots weighing three and a half pounds. With the full backing of the state and was known as the aeus signatum, meaning stamped metal because it was stamped by the government with a cow, eagle, or elephant, or other image. Sometimes they were made to resemble a scallop shell. In 289 BC, these ingots were replaced by discoidal cast-leaded bronze coins, heavy metal. They represented national money and were paid into circulation by the state, and each was only of value in as much as the symbols in which its numbers were recorded were scarce or otherwise, this money was thus based on law rather than the metallic content. Although the, that content was standardized, standardized, and the coin did have some intrinsic value, unlike most coins today, this could be considered as an early example of the successful use of fiat money. While fiat money is much criticized in some quarters, for example, by the followers of Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, there is nothing wrong with it, as long as it is issued by government, not by private bankers, and it is carefully protected against counterfeiters. Non-fiat money, in contrast, has the serious drawback that whoever sets the prices of gold and silver, i.e. private bankers, can control the, nation, the nation's economy. Up to 300 BC, there was an unsurpassed increase in public and private wealth of the Romans. This may be measured in the gain in land after the conclusion of the Second Latin War in 338 BC. In the defeat of the Etruscans, the Roman Republic increased in size from 2,135 square miles to 10,350 square miles, or 20% of peninsular from about 20% uh, of peninsular Italy. In tandem with the expansion of its land area, the population rose from about 750,000 to 1 million, with 150,000 persons living in Rome itself. A partnership was formed between the Senate and the people known as Senatus Populusque Romanus meaning the Senate and people of Rome. The political leaders were renowned for their frugality and honest virtue. The means of exchange was strictly regulated in accordance with the increase in population and trade, and there was zero inflation. Debt bondage, nexum, whereby a free man offered his services as security for a loan and interest. And whereas in cases of non-payment, the debt had to be worked off, was abolished after plebeian agitation by the Lex Poetelia in 326 BC. The Silver Age. The traditional money system was destroyed in 267 BC, when the patrician elite obtained and privilege to mint silver coinage. This change was typified by a patrician 
who went to the temple of Juno Moneta, from whence the word money is derived, and converted a sack full of silver denarii to five times its original value by the simple expedient of stamping a new value on the coins. He thus pocketed a very substantial difference in signage for his own private account. The early Roman silver coin was known as the drachma and was modeled on a coin used in the Greek south of the peninsula. It was later replaced with the smaller and lighter denarius. There was also a half denarius called the quinarius and a quarter unit called the sestertius. Still later, the system was supplemented with the victoriatus, somewhat lighter than the denarius, and probably intended to facilitate trade with Rome's Greek neighbors. There were very few deposits of silver in the Italian peninsula, and as a consequence, the Roman army had to be expanded in order to conquer territories to obtain supplies. The Roman peasants, who had provided the Republic with food and independence, were drafted in increasing numbers into the army. Agricultural production, especially corn, decline in the peasant farmers, were replaced by Latifundia, Latifundia, which were large estates worked by slaves. Wheat also had to be imported from North Africa. Tensions about granting citizenship and enfranchisement between Rome and her Italic allies resulted in the social war. This lack of enfranchisement had led to the fragmentation of Rome society and the alienation of the working class citizens, who were treated as chattel and who had no responsibilities and therefore no commitment towards the state. Until as late as the Second Punic War, 218 to 201 BC, they were not allowed to serve in the army. This is a classic example of how, which had been monetarized. The Republic was weakened and there was increasing despotism. Privacy became a major problem with raids taking place on the coast, villas being sacked and travelers kidnapped. Violence began, became endemic and gangsters and terrorists were active in Rome as there was no police force to maintain law and order. These are inevitable consequences of a society in which money has become the highest ethos. There was also political intrigue amongst the, amongst the elite. Economic deprivation caused discontent amongst the poor, who were increasingly slaves from North Africa and social unrest. This turmoil culminated in the revolt led by Spartacus in 73 to 71 BC. The first and second revolts were in 135 and 132 BC, and in 104 to 100 BC. The Jewish role in the collapse. The first known Jewish who arrived in Roman, who arrived in Rome in 161 BC, were Yehuda and Maccabee. These early Roman Jews employed themselves as craftsmen, peddlers, and shopkeepers. In the last occupation occupation, they also indulged in money lending. As a community, they lived separately in apartments. They governed themselves according to their own laws and were exempt from military service. In 139 BC, the Jews, who were not Roman citizens, were expelled by Hispanus for proselytizing 
but they soon returned in 19 AD by means of a senatus consultum. Emperor Tiberius expelled 4,000 Jews who had been involved in various scandals, but none of these expulsions were properly enforced in their continued presence, in particular, as usurers. Usurers would play a significant role in the decline and collapse of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, 100 to 44 BC, was born into an aristocratic family on July 12, 100 BC. He was tall and fair-headed and practiced briefly as a lawyer before becoming a brilliant military commander who conquered Gaul, France, in 59 to 52 BC. After his defeat of Pompey the Great in 48 BC at Pharsalus, Caesar became the undisputed leader of the Roman, Empire, Roman Republic. On his return to Italy in September 45 BC, Caesar found the streets and cities crowded with homeless people who had been forced off the land by usurers and land monopolists. 300,000 people had to be fed daily at the public granary. Usury was flourishing with disastrous consequences. The principal usurers, many of whom were Jewish, were charging interest rates as high as 48% per annum. Per annum. As Lucius Aeneas Seneca, 4 BC to 65 AD, the philosopher would later remark in De Superstitone, the customs of the most criminal nation have gained such strength that they have now been received in all hands. The conquered have given laws to the conqueror. At that time, there were two main political parties. The, uh, the optimates centered around the nobility, the senate and the privileged few, and the populares who represented the citizens. Caesar immediately assumed leadership of the latter. Caesar fully understood the evils of usury and how to counter them. He recognized the profound truth that money is a national agent created by law for a national purpose and that no classes of men should withhold it from circulation so as to cause panics in order that spec speculators could advance the rates of interest or could buy up property at ruinous prices after such panic. Caesar introduced the following social reforms. One, restoration of property was done at the much lower valuations, which held prior to the Civil War, 49 to, 50, 49 to 45 BC. Two, several remissions of rents were granted. Three, large numbers of poor citizens and discharged veterans were settled on allotments. Four, free housing was provided to 80,000 impoverished families. Five, soldiers' pay was increased from 123 to 225 denarii. Six, the corn dole was regulated. Seven, provincial communities were enfranchised. Eight, confusion in the calendar was removed by fixing it at 365 and a quarter days from January 1st, 44 BC. His monetary reforms were as follows. One, State debt levels 
were immediately reduced by 25%. Two, control of the mint was transferred from the patricians, usurers, to government. Three, cheap metal coins were issued as the means of exchange. Four, it was ruled that interest could not be levied at more than 1% per month. Five, it was decreed that interest could not be charged on interest and that the total interest charge could never exceed the capital loaned. Six, slavery was abolished as a means of settling debt. Seven, aristocrats were forced to employ their capital and not hoard it. These measures enraged the aristocrats and plutocrats whose livelihood was now severely restricted. They therefore conspired to murder Caesar, the hero of the people, on that fatal, on that fateful morning of 15, uh, March 15th, 44 BC, only four years after assuming power, he arrived at the Senate building unarmed, having dismissed his military guard, who had previously been in constant attendance. Surrounded by 60 conspirators, he was stabbed to death and received 23 wounds. That was crazy. Absolutely crazy. So, hopefully you guys are enjoying this so far. And my reading skills are getting better. Just going to have a sip of my drink. Then we're going to get on to the golden age Okay. In 27 BC, shortly after Caesar's death and his defecation, there are some misspelled words in here, guys. I just want to let you know there are some misspelled words in here, like a lot. This is, I think, never mind. The Romans adopted the gold standard, which would have far reaching implications for the financial stability of the empire and lead directly to its demise. Previously, during the days of the Roman Republic, gold coins were issued only in times of great need, such as during the Second Punic War or the campaign of Lucius Cornelius Sulla. There were few gold mines in Europe, except in remote places like Wales, Transylvania, and Spain and therefore most of the supplies could only be secured from the east. This, in turn, required a large and expensive army, which became engaged in constant conflict at the empire's fringes. The gold coin was known as aureus, also in circulation, were the silver denarius and various copper coins, the sesteritius, dupondius, and the as. The scarcity of gold or commodity money frequently induced periods of deflation as a result of the lack of a circulating means of exchange. In 13 BC, a measure of relief was provided when the weight of the gold aureus was reduced from 122 to 72 grains, and this remained the standard weight until 310 AD. However, metals continued to flow eastwards in order to pay for luxury items, religious dues, and usury payments. Furthermore, wear and tear resulted in the loss of one-third of a total coinage in circulation over a hundred-year period. 
As gold was treated as a commodity, its debasement was not tolerated. Emperor Constantine personally ordered death for counterfeiting and the burning of public minters who committed falsification. Money changers who did not report a counterfeit gold, Besant, also known as Solidus, were immediately flogged, enslaved, and exiled. These regulations were effective for the Besant, which weighed 70 grains and was slightly more than the Besant that was still circulating in 102.5 AD. So 1025 AD and weighed 68 grains. In 313 AD, Christianity was tolerated by the Edict of Milan, and from 380 AD was established as the official religion by Emperor Theodosius. 347 to 395 AD. From this time, monetary power resided in the religious authority of the Pontifex. Pontifex Maximus, a feature of the imperial era, was social injustice in the undermining of the middle classes through ex excessive taxation. The Roman businessman was not a traitor, but a looter of the provinces, as the homeland had a weak industrial production base, which was incapable of providing the required manufactured goods. As the monetary nation monetarization of society continued with the rich paras parasitizing of the common man the plebeians became more like slaves the abolition of the jury system was sim symptomatic of the declining respect and importance for the common man in roman society role of the church in the decline and fall the tax that Emperor Constantine decreed, viz., that one-tenth of all income had to be teethed to the Christian church, hastened, hastened the destruction of the empire. Eventually, the church held one-third to one-half of all lands and accumulated wealth. This concentration of wealth produced a great scarcity of coinage. Money existed but there was no circulation or distribution of goods and services. Instead of recycling the teethed money by means of investment in the community or charitable works, such as construction of hospitals, schools, libraries, vast hordes of gold were concentrated behind the 20-foot thick walls of the fortress city of Constantinople and the Vatican fortress in Rome. In its last years in the 5th and 6th centuries, the Roman Empire had become a parasitic organism, subject to altering phases of inflation and deflation. Its economic ruination preceded its political ruination. There was no industrial production. Almost all food had to be imported, and usury was practiced on a, an unprecedented scale. The wealth of the empire that was not held by the church was controlled by 2,000 Roman families. The rest of the population lived in poverty. Consequences. The implosion of the Western half of the empire in 476 AD, after repeated military incursions by the Goths and Vandals resulted in the Dark Ages. 
A punishing multi-century deflation depression followed. According to the United States Silver Commission of 1876, the metallic money of the Roman Empire at its height amounted to $1.8 billion. But by the end of the Dark Ages, it had shrunk to $200 million. Agriculture was reduced to substance level. Large sailing vessels vanished as there was no trade. Commerce stagnated. Arts and science were lost, and the knowledge of cement making disappeared. Major factors in the decline of the Roman Empire were the concentration of wealth, the absence of mining deposits for industrial production, and the vast importation of non-white slaves, with the resultant degradation of the genetic value of the nation. By the 4th century AD, as a result of the continuing decline in the Roman female fertility, slaves outnumbered citizens by 5 to 1. The most important economic reason was an inadequate supply of an inexpensive circulating medium of money and the false notion that money should be a commodity. Thus, from an economic perspective, the lessons from the fall of Rome are that a dishonest economic system will inevitably contribute to the forces of dissolution. No society can survive a false economic system. For any society to function and prosper, it, it is absolutely fundamental that the means of exchange by, be issued free of debt and interest by the legal authority of the state as representatives of the people in perpetuity. That was chapter one, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And we will be doing chapter two. So just listen into the next one. Click on the next video. Make sure to like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, guys.